0: Welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite Fed Fun Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum as well as raising awareness regarding the amazing and dynamic volunteer work that Dysphasia Outreach Project does every day for individuals across the lifespan with dysphasia, And this episode is dedicated to trauma and ARF, not to be confused with adult ARFID. Oh, that's a totally different thing. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. Jessica Lasky is a medical speech-language pathologist that specializes in dysphagia and the adult geriatric populations. Jessica has worked in nearly every setting possible, from outpatient neurorehabilitation, stroke, and trauma, one hospitals, acute rehab facilities, and SNFs. In 2015, Jessica launched her mobile fees company, Mobile Scope, that provides fee services across the state of Arizona. She has since also launched a CEU company, Evolutionary Education Solutions, focusing on dysphagia and fees training. Jessica is passionate about patient advocacy, evidence-based practice, and continuous clinical growth and mentoring. Jessica is a clinical mentor and moderator for the Med SLP Collective and enjoys helping fellow clinicians all over the country and the world navigate tricky clinical problems. Jessica is a four-time ASHA ACE recipient and presents on various topics from dysphagia to delirium all across the United States. Jessica co-founded the Dysphagia Outreach Project alongside Hillary Cooper and Michelle Cafero to help spread education and resources to clinicians and patients working with and impacted by dysphagia. She lives in Phoenix, which I've been to, that place is hot, with her husband and her three beautiful cats. So Jessica, I'm so glad you're here. And honestly, for the life of me, I was like, I didn't know adult patients had ARFID. And I didn't understand (laughs) why you were calling it ARF. And then I was like, let's adult better. So hi. welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for
1: having me. I'm so excited to be here today.
0: (laughs) I kept looking at the title, Trauma and ARF, and I was like, I didn't know adult patients had (laughs) ARF after trauma, but isn't that misspelled? I'm so glad you clarified.
1: (laughs) I love it. And one more reason I should know better than to use abbreviations.
0: But this is why we have to code switch from <laughs> our specific subset medical terminology to the greater world because yo, you're gonna run into a peds SLP that reads and was like they don't know how to spell Arfin. <laughs> I really enjoy um, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, hi. Welcome Hello to so. the Dysphagia Outreach Podcast Project. Ta-da. Um, <laughs> I, w- I will be your ADD, ADHD host for the afternoon. <laughs> Thank you for hanging with the crazies. No, I love how it. How <laughs> did you become a speech-language pathologist? And then how did you meet Hillary and Michelle and found Dysphagia Outreach Project?
1: Yeah. so. You know, I I had a really interesting childhood. I grew up in nursing homes. My grandmother actually was an administrator of a nursing home. And so instead of like daycare, I was just kind of allowed to be in the nursing home and like running around. And so some of my best friends as a child were in their 90s. And so when it came time to figure out what in the world I wanted to do in life, I knew I wanted to do something with elderly people. I knew I wanted to work with adults. And so in my travels, just as a human being, I had met a couple of SLPs and we had a family friend that was an SLP who really just loved her job. She raved about what she did for a living and granted she worked with children. You know, She told me that you could also work with adults. And I was like, sure, let's try this. Funny enough, initially I was going to be a pharmacist, but then realized that would be just painfully boring for me. I like talking to people way too much. So um, I went ahead and um, applied to grad school, got in and have never really looked back. you know when I got out of school, I was really lucky in I got to have my CF in a outpatient neuroclinic. and then eventually I transitioned into a trauma hospital and just kind of dabbled a little bit of everywhere and just have had an amazing career. So in that, I'm obsessed with CEUs. I'm obsessed with learning. So pre-COVID, I would go to a bunch of conferences all over the country every year. And in that, I kept running. Wait, what's your favorite? Oh, that's too much. Oh, I love them all. You know, (laughs) it's so hard because I have such a wide variety of interests. I loved the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. That was a great one. Charleston, of course, is amazing. You know, there's just so many great conferences every year, DRS. Oh, I want to go to that one. That's a great one. You totally should. It, it would be, yeah.
0: Wait, DRS, folks, that's the Dysphagia Research Society, their annual yes. convention. Sorry. Yep. Yes. Yep. Continue. <laughs>
1: again, those abbreviations, they get me every time. So I started running into people that I recognized. And along my travels, I kept running into Hillary and Michelle and other people that were, you know, definitely more dysphagia focused. And we just kind of started sitting next to each other at conferences, you know, you see the familiar face and you're like, oh, hey, like, let's hang out. And so among that, you know, as we we kind of grew and became friends, All of us. You know, one of the things that we always noticed, and from my perspective, it was my patients that were leaving the hospital, and I just knew that there were no resources for them. There was nothing for them once they left my doors. And it was something that really always bothered me, but I didn't know quite how to address it. And funny enough, Hillary had had the same kind of set of, you know, worries and angst for her patients as did Michelle. And so Hillary had this idea of like, what if we created the company that provided the resources for people. And it was sort of this like amazing idea of like, well, holy crap, can we actually do this? Give three of us like random people just actually pull something like this together and do something that so when our patients leave the highly structured settings that they came to us in, they actually have a chance of getting what they need. And so it was this sort of crazy idea that we just wanted to kind of help our patients and help the world be slightly better place. And we just threw ourselves into it. And that's where the dysphagia outreach project kind of emerged from was this, this really terrifying thing of our patients having really significant health issues, having a lot of financial issues and coming back to us You know, every few months in a little bit of a worse state because they didn't have access to just the basic things that they needed to support their diagnosis. And so that's where we started. And that's where the food bank really has kind of come along and been like the big part of our focus for our company.
0: Just earlier today, I had the pleasure of speaking to another Jessica, Jessica Kahn, and Hillary Cooper, the Hillary that co founded it with you, and hearing how richly blessed this program and project is and how that in turn has gone on to fulfill the need of those that we serve across the life continuum, whether it be getting bottles or spoons for like my tiny humans or like the adaptive equipment and the formulas for our older patients that is, and for the tiny ones, but for our older patients, is just profound. So on behalf of all of us out here in the world where we see it, the fact that you guys gave voice to a problem and then spoke a solution into the universe and fulfilled it. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, no. Thank you so much for acknowledging that. It's a huge endeavor that we're so lucky that we have so many amazing people that have been willing to dedicate their time and even more people willing to dedicate resources to us so that we could provide something for these fellow human beings, you know, and it's, interesting. I have to tell this story because I always think this is really funny because Hillary, Michelle, and myself are all adult therapists. And so, of course... I had the mindset of like, well, of course, it's adults that need this the most. I didn't think about <laughs> <No>. children. <laughs> so we started this and then we were doing the analytics and we were like, oh, my goodness, 80% of our recipients are babies and small children. And I, yeah, I had, that's me. We, we had this like conversation <laughs> of like, oh, hold on. There's so many tiny people that really need our help as well you know, inadvertently in our kind of zest to help all of these adults, you know, we realized that there's a profound need for pediatrics. And I will say like, once we figured that out, like my heart just expanded to just really include all of these like tiny little humans and we see their successes and their stories and we see them thriving. And I I'm a little obsessed with it. But it's just funny because when we first started this, I wouldn't have even necessarily thought about children and babies with dysphagia. I was so worried about my adults. <laughs> and who would have thought that this project that we launched would so greatly help all of these children? And that just makes my heart so happy.
0: Okay. So I'm just saying, I follow you guys on social media and folks, if you haven't yet, go check out Dyspacia Outreach Project, all one word on Instagram. You guys need to do like a celebration tab. Do the follow-up because that's what we like. We live for that. I love seeing the tiny humans like, hey, this was the problem. This was the recipient. Huzzah! But like, (laughs) I want to see the tiny humans and the grandmas that are thriving. So just as a thought nerdy, unsolicited thought.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. I will throw that out there to our amazing social media team. We are so, 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 so lucky. We have the best people, like I said, it was, it's been amazing. Who's been willing to come on and help us so much with all of the parts, because I think people look at the Dysipation Outreach Project and they think there's, you know, they don't know how many of us are a part of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm like, no, there's nearly a hundred people working their tails off at any given moment to make this a reality on every front. Yes. And they're all, y'all, they're all volunteers, heads up. None of us take a penny in pay. We do this just because it's something that needs to be done. It had a full reason to be here. And honestly, we wouldn't want to take any money from it because that's money that could go to, again, our recipients.
0: All right. So let's get into it. Let's talk about adults, which is something that I got to be honest, I ain't done in a minute. So this is going to be like a crash course for yours truly, because the world's... I mean, I know... It's more or less the same concept. There's two (laughs) tubes, and you don't want the food to go in the wrong tube, but like there's a whole lot of differences beyond that. So, what are some of the general misconceptions when it comes to dysphagia in the hospital that you have seen and heard?
1: Well, you know, I think I'm going to start a little bit back from that because. You know, you actually bring up a really good point. Again, just like I have my adult goggles on the majority of my day, I should probably take a step back and say that just like pediatrics, when a patient comes into the hospital, there are a ton of people on their team, and it may take them a little while to get the correct consults in to have us come and evaluate those patients. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions I see is that the minute a patient comes in the hospital is they are identified by that speech pathologist and care starts right there at day one. And something that sometimes happens is that actually we might not find that patient until day five, day 10, day 15 in their course of stay for a variety of different reasons. And so it's something that as a medical SLP... That works with adults, you know, we're constantly going and advocating and educating other professionals to help them better understand dysphagia and identify those patients to get them over to us. Because we can't do anything for those patients if we don't actually meet them ever. And then some of the other things that I think can sometimes be a little bit abstract is that with adults, You have so much more history to cover than, you know, I think sometimes with children. You know, I have 80 years of history of all sorts of different things that can happen with my patient. And one of my favorite stories that I tell sometimes is I had this patient one time and he was having some difficulty swallowing. And I did a really thorough case history. I mean, I spent probably. Close to an hour with this patient, just going over everything in his life that could have caused this dysphagia because he was in for something that wouldn't typically result in there being a dysphagia. And so finally, you know, we come to the decision that we're going to go and do a modified barium swallow study. So we go down to the suite, and the radiology tech does just a flash view to make sure that we're in line where we need to be before the radiologist comes into the suite. And there's hardware all up and down this man's cervical spine. And I look at him and I go, sir, <laughs> I asked you, did you have neck surgery? And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I did. And I'm like, look at this picture. It's everywhere. <laughs> There's stuff everywhere. And he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. You know, I used to have a pain back there. And then they, did, they just did a little procedure. I mean, I was in and out <laughs> within a couple of days. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> There's stuff everywhere. I now have a better idea of why you're having these issues. <laughs> So we oh have my.
0: <laughs> a little procedure.
1: Okay, so Just what a- was the big
0: procedure in comparison? If that was his little procedure, by the way, right?
1: Exactly. He had told me everything from his dentures to his teeth implants to everything, yet missed the anterior cervical disectomy with fusion that he had had. <laughs>
0: Okay, wait, 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 wait. Interesting mind wants to want to know, have you ever done a modified and seen somebody's dentures in their larynx?
1: I have not had that pleasure to see that, but I have done many of fees where I have found a lot of different, interesting foreign objects in people's throats. Oh.
0: <laughs> nope. Oh my God. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Sorry. I, no, this is again, why I'm on the tiny, I mean, the grossest thing that's happened. Well, I mean, I've had a lot of gross things, but I've had a lot of kids shove foreign objects in their nose, like yes. Legos, m ms what's,
1: what's so yeah. funny is I tell people before we do the fees that, you know, I'm putting the camera through their nose and I'm like, you know, it's going to be weird because typically we stop shoving things in our nose after about the age four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, that, that would be yours. <laughs>
0: I once had a little guy with ASD and bipolar schizophrenic component as well. And he had a friend, his hand that he named Frankie. And if he wouldn't eat something, Frankie would eat something. But Frankie (gasps) ate inanimate objects, preferably blue inanimate objects. So we would be working on food and then Frankie would come up through his shirt and go, Hmm, I wonder what this blue tastes like. And then... (laughs) Before I could stop him, Frankie ate a, a blue bead that we were like <laughs> stringing together, working on like language expansion activities. And he goes, mm, not so good. And I was, like, oh my God. And I had to like call his mom. It would like stuffed away. And she was like, she's like, eh, I mean, it can't be any worse than like the blue. And she proceeds to list the things that he has consumed that one week alone. And I was like, called the pediatrician. And she was like, not the biggest concern I have for this child. And I was like... Okay. Bubble shattered. Okay. Yeah. A lot of misconceptions, but yes, knowing that there's hardware in your patient's cervical spine is probably key in their diagnosis.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You know, and it's Mm -hmm. interesting you talk about patients with, you know, maybe some psychiatric things. That's actually the population I think I found the most interesting things when I've gone to fees a patient. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have found beads in patients' throats before that they were doing a, you know, an activity and they decided to swallow a bead that, you know, had sharp, jaggedy Mm -hmm. little edges that they couldn't swallow. And I got consulted for the fees and we were like, oh, there it is. (laughs)
0: In your this molecular piriform sinus, where
1: was it? Typically, the piriform. I'm telling you, the piriforms are just like they're like the Bermuda triangles. You just find all sorts of interesting things in there.
0: <laughs> I gotta be honest, somehow <laughs> this does correlate to my theory that this was gonna be about Arfid, but like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, yep. <laughs>
1: Oh, my gosh, I love this. When you come to some of it's interesting, some of the other misconceptions when it comes to adult dysphagia is that, you know, just like we were talking about, you never know what you're going to find. And, you know, people have a whole lifetime of history, whether it be pre existing dysphagia, as well as, you know, their current status, like, are they physically mobile, you know, and that's probably a big difference you can come in to somebody who's been down for three days. They're physically extremely different than their are normal and cognitively very different. And they fluctuate so much in the hospital. You know, I'll go into a room and in one minute, they're talking to me. They're lucid. I come back that afternoon to see them for their instrumental study and they're completely off the deep end. They're hallucinating. They're seeing things, hearing things, and just having a very different type of experience in that moment. And so a lot of what we do in the hospital when you look at the acuity is almost just working on A, getting the patient stabilized, but working on discharge, you know, and that's where, again, the Dysphagia Outreach Project came up so much for me is because I felt like I spent the majority of my time just working on a patient and getting them squared away to discharge out of our hospital. And when you have somebody with dysphagia, that's a really difficult thing. It is so hard to get them set up and truly get them understanding what they're going to need to do to manage their their foods and drinks because in the hospital, they just magically appear. They're the right consistency. They're set to go. They get three meals a day. They get any snacks they need. We have all of the equipment to prepare everything. And when they leave, they have a loss of everything as far as access to those those foods and liquids that would be the appropriate things that they need unless they go to another care facility. And in that transport of one facility to another facility, a lot gets lost in translation. And so, so there's sometimes where, you know, they would leave our hospital and that we would have them set up on an ultra diet. They get to their next level of care and the message never got across to them. So then they come back to us, you know, two weeks later with a raging pneumonia and they're completely different. And that's where that, acute respiratory failure comes in is, you know, there's just so much going on with these patients. And so something when I talk to clinicians that haven't worked in that setting is I don't think they realize how complex and how difficult that setting can truly be when you're trying to manage even just one patient. It's really interesting and really fascinating, but I find that it's where we identify Dysphagia, we're typically the first people that find it and start that patient's whole global experience with their swallow of figuring it out, diagnosing it, giving them that very first little bit of education, and then helping them figure out what the next steps are.
0: I'm just so grateful for the adult SLPs that, I mean, I know we're all adults, but like <laughs> those of you that can do this, because When my grandfather was, when he had pancreatic cancer and it progressed really quickly. And I was a grad student. And I remember driving from grad school. I did grad school at James Madison University. So who had all the Duke dogs out there? But when I made it home, you know, they were trying to feed him. And, you know, I say home, but he was in the hospital. And there I am. And he was so fatigued, he couldn't feed himself anymore. So I was giving him tomato soup. He loved grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soups. Those were comfort foods. His favorite food I talked about earlier, but this was he wanted comfort food at this time. And he was choking, sputtering, coughing on tomato soup that I was spooning into his mouth. I was in granddaughter hat. I wasn't in, Hey, I'm about to graduate with my master's degree. And this is an overt (laughs) sign symptom of aspiration, right? Like duh. And then I literally remember making eye contact with him and he had the clearest blue eyes I've ever seen. They were like, crystal clear, like what I would think like a European lake would look like, right? Oh, wow. Like snow lake, you know, like that kind of blue and like a glacier. And, and Pop, which is so funny because he had more mirth in him than I think Santa Claus could possibly <laughs> muster. But And I looked at him and I was like, Pop, you can't swallow this. And he just shook his head and like his, his they started like not sagging, but you could see the spark fading. And I was like, And I walked out the hallway, is like, I need a speech pathologist now. (laughs) My mom was like, (laughs) my mom was like, what the bloody you know what just happened? (laughs) But like I went from like granddaughter to like, this is bad. But I mean, I couldn't in that moment think palliative care, hospice, final stages, maybe days to go. But like it was just like this is what I need. They sent a really nice speech pathologist that took like pity and comfort and was just like, I don't even know who she was. If you're out there, if you volunteer with dysphagia outreach projects, multiple <laughs> levels of gratitude, but like you were amazing in that moment. So
1: yes, yes. But um, so there's so many myths, so many. And you bring up a really big part of our day, which is the end of life, you know, really assisting people in being able to have things to eat and drink that are pleasurable to them towards their end of life and really focusing on the patient and their holistic global needs, which, you know, can be really hard. While it's really extremely satisfying to know that I helped somebody in their final days be more comfortable and be able to have the things that they like to eat and drink that are meaningful to them. Like that's really important. It can be really hard to then watch them also pass away and seeing them go. And it's such a big part if you work in a hospital, a part of what you do is helping in those last moments. So, you know, which is, it's bittersweet, I guess would be kind of the word for it.
0: We are put where we are needed. It's my fundamental belief. Um, If you have the Muchness for those moments, I you'll be there. Yeah. Ah, actually, I like that. I like that a lot. Yes. So that's a little bit of Alice in Wonderland and growing up Southern Baptist. So there it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right. So, what are some of the atypical presentations of dysphagia that you've come across aside from swallowing beads, maybe oh. finding partials <laughs> and neckwear? <laughs>
1: Right. Every day is different. So some of the things that I don't think a lot of people think about when they're thinking dysphagia are, again, you know, probably a little bit sad to think about, but like patients that have been shot in the neck or have been stabbed in the neck or a lot of hangings. That would actually is probably one of the more, I should say, common times where I'll have a patient that has more persistent dysphagia and those patients that drink very toxic fluids, so patients that drink like Drano or bleach. So, you know, sometimes when we're thinking dysphagia, I think people always think, oh, it's, it was a stroke, you know, it was something that happened in their head, head and neck cancer, it was a stroke, or acute respiratory failure, they have a trach, and they don't forget there is this subsegment of people in the population that have dysphagia, chronic Persistent dysphagia because maybe they stabbed themselves in the neck or they were stabbed in the neck or they were shot. They tried to hang themselves or they were hung or they drank things that they shouldn't have drank, you know, things that wouldn't be typically consumed by any of us. And so it's really interesting to me because, you know, you go through again that whole process of helping that patient and really seeing some interesting underlying different types of etiologies of dysphagia and kind of working your way through them with the patient of how do we get there? What nerves were damaged? What other people do we bring into your case? How do we go about what does healing look like? Because, you know, I had a patient one time who was shot And he was shot in the neck and there was just a ton of different involvement from just the structural changes. But then also, you know, there was lower motor neuron damage. And so we had a lot of things we had to work through. Interestingly enough, he ended up did he did end up being able to consume th- some things by mouth again after many many months of rehabilitation but he was never quite the same again cuz he was very young we had to prep him that as you age you know you're probably going to have decline in your swallow so you're you're in your 20s now but when you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s you know this is going to be something you're going to have to watch out for your entire life and really educating him to be a self advocate and to really know how to go about managing his lifelong changed swallow. And then of course, some of the voice and other things that were going along, but his changes that he would have to be on top of for the rest of his life. And these are things that, again, I don't think everybody always thinks about when they think of dysphagia. They think of, I was just as guilty when I came out of grad school. You know, I was like, oh, it'll be somebody that has, they have a stroke. They're going to get identified in the hospital. You do your MBS, you do some exercises, they go to rehab. And then at the end of the day, they get better. And for some people, that's not how it goes. And they don't always get 100% recovery, and they may have to compensate for life or have different things for life. And, you know, to loop it back to the dysphagia outreach project, that's kind of again where this came in is, you know, where do they go? What if they're in a really bad place where maybe they're homeless, which is, I mean, that's one of my, the populations I love the most, I think, is patients who are, are more nomadic. You know, they don't have a fixed residence. And what do they do? What do they do to manage all of their needs? And then that's kind of where this this project came because we actually have some recipients that are homeless. We can send their stuff to different shelters or a PO box or things like that, and then they can go and get the products that they need to stay alive and stay going and not just be continuously going back to the hospital and eventually ending up in a care facility where... That's clearly not the type of life that they could have had had they had help and assistance.
0: I'm so worried about the state, the city of Phoenix right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still processing all these things, and like Columbia ain't that great, but like I'm a little worried about Phoenix. So (laughs) I have never, ever had. I mean <laughs> there are so city. much to take apart from that whole piece. Like yes, I did not think about dysphagia with the homeless population and I mean I'm thinking what about our like an oral stage dysphagia if they can't masticate through and when I think of adults I did okay, to my credit, I did about 6 weeks in a sniff, but my grandma raised me and like mm, couldn't couldn't do it. I just wanted to hug all the old people and paint their fingernails. This is not conducive <laughs> to like productivity <laughs> records, right?
1: But oh my God, Jessica, like Phoenix, are we okay? Like that's, uh, that's <laughs> It is every city you people you may not want to think about it, but it is everywhere. We are yeah. not unique. In fact, I would say that we're pretty on par with any other city in the United States. You have interesting things, like there was a few years ago where we had people that, for whatever reason, felt that they needed to attack each other with machetes, and that was a real thing for about six months before it just kind of disappeared. But it's every city. It's everywhere. I have friends that practice in these tiny little rural areas, and they have the same stories I have, especially if they're in a trauma hospital, because that's where everybody kind of comes and gets their help. You know, if you work in a very a lower level level hospital in a rural area, those patients probably get shipped out to the trauma center elsewhere. So you might not see it. But, you know, even then, if that patient a year down the road gets sick, they're probably gonna be in your hospital. At some point, you're gonna have access. At some point, they're going to be treated or evaluated by an SLP whether it's in that acute phase or later lo- later on. And that's something that, you know, again, I think people don't always think about. You know, when we think about dysphagia, it's really funny when I talk to other people and by people I mean SLPs because of course I'm not just going in the grocery store and I'm like, well, hello, I see you're picking out some fruit. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you couldn't swallow that fruit? <laughs>
0: No, but like secretly, have you ever, cause I know I've done this. I'm like, Ooh, I wonder if that individual has a cervical osteophyte given their stance in the checkout line or like yes. I'm sitting there. I mean, like I'm watching the old people when they like go through the checkout line or like the mothers with the young babies. And I'm like, Ooh, that baby has definitely signs and symptoms of laryngomalasia, trachomalasia. When was the last <laughs> time they were scoped? But like, cause that's what we do. You are that person. Whoever's listening, you know you do that.
1: <laughs> or you're at the restaurant and you're like, you see, you know, that person that, you know, is every time they take that sip of water and they're they're coughing and sputtering <laughs> after. And you're like, yes. Yeah. I will say, this is a story. I was on a plane flight back to Phoenix from a, a conference and there was a gentleman beside me who was clearly post-stroke. He was there with his wife and they had forgotten their thickeners. It was so strange that I was sat next to them. And so he was thirsty throughout the flight. So she kept just giving him water and he was coughing so violently. And I was like, don't get involved, Jessica. Don't get involved. Like, please don't oh, get involved. And then, you of course, I was did. like, so Sir, like, <laughs> I noticed you're having some problems swallowing. I was like, I love that you're drinking water. That's really good, but you should probably go brush your teeth real quick. And then, like, <laughs> she was like, Well, he can't really, like, walk. And I'm like, Okay. And, like, we're, like, pulling out stuff and, like, brushing his teeth in the middle of the seats in this airport or in this airplane. <laughs> like, and I'm like, Okay. And now I'm like, Okay, take a small sip. Like, don't go too crazy. <laughs> you're going to cough less. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel that, but that's who we are, yes. And it was like helping them off the plane because then there was the whole thing of like getting his wheelchair back there. And like, because he was like, they'd had a walker, but he was just so fatigued by the end of the flight. We were like, okay, we're going to need to get him off here a different way. And, you know, then we get out of the airplane and like the flight attendants were like, Hey, good luck. And she's like this little old lady. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to walk you to wherever you're going next. (laughs) We've now become a little, a little collective group here.
0: I circle back around to we are where we are supposed to be (laughs) in all aspects of our lives.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. All right. All right. Let me take it back. Way once upon a time when I was a CF, I actually worked as the first full-time SLP at a very rural little hospital. And we had a patient that came in from like, but like, it was like 45 minutes to like any major other facility or any other hospital in like any direction because small town girl. And we had a patient that came in under detox and he was older than me. And I was like 26. I mean, he had to be 28. I mean, he wasn't even in his thirties and he gone through detox and he was arrested on like meth charges, but it turns out he drank like I don't know how to describe it. It was the tiny thing of gin a day, not the big bottles, but the little bottles, but a mm-hmm. handle, a handle. I'm not sure it was a full handle. I don't know. There's a slang term for it, but like <laughs> the man had, he consumed copious amounts of alcohol, but he went through detox in the jail cell on meth charges and ended up having a massive seizure. And he bit off the lateral edges of his tongue, a third on each side and the tip hmm Yep. They were like, Michelle, can you get him to eat something? And I go in and like his, honest to goodness, they'd bandaged his tongue like the kid in the Christmas story who yep. licked the frozen pole. And I was like, ooh, I highly recommend that we pursue an NG tube for the immediate short course <laughs> plan of action. <laughs> but let me tell you, that was not covered in grad school, by the way. No, so no. Like, the, the trauma
1: injuries- Are never covered in grad school for some reason, like the car accidents where somebody bites their tongue off or a seizure or, you know, projectile objects going through cheeks and tongues and jaws and all those things. And then you brought up another good reason for dysphagia short term is withdrawal. So when people are withdrawing from drugs or alcohol, you know, a lot of times, a lot of them will have dysphagia as they go through that. And so, you know, these, you brought up such a great point. These are the things they never taught me in grad school. And so I'm looking around at my other like health professionals and I'm like, please help me, (laughs) help me understand so that I can do my job. (laughs) Try a surgeon.
0: (laughs) That's probably
1: what we should have entitled this, What Grad School Failed to Preface for. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Like, I never thought I would see like a piece of rebar that went up straight through somebody's. uh, This is a true story a, a bull from, or a horn from a bull going through somebody's cheek and tongue. He got kicked off the bull, and the bull, well, the bull got him. You know, like the
0: bull- <laughs> I'm sorry. What state do you live in again? Is bull riding a thing in Arizona? Like that's a thing. Yes, right? the yeah Girl, we're Southwest. We bring that all out here. <laughs> no, honey, in the South, we just eat. That's that's our claim to fame. I mean, you have a joyful moment, there's mac and cheese for that. You have a sad moment, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make you mac and cheese. Basically, we're gonna fry it and coat it in cheese. And this is this is our excitement, which is also inadvertent. <laughs> Certainly, good to know, one zip code next to me has the (laughs) highest above me amputations in the entire United States of America. So like, word. (laughs) Oh, that's true. That's sad. I'll take a bull rodeo.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we'll have young rodeo clowns. That's what they're called coming in because they've been traumatized by the bull. So
0: not a typical dysphagia onset in my world.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. It's very interesting. You know, when you work in the trauma centers or you work with adults, it's very interesting how people have come to have their swallowing difficulties. <laughs> and it's always really interesting to watch them get better, you know, and to to make these recoveries in a lot of cases or have to figure out how to teach them to live their life a little bit differently in other cases and getting to be a part of their their story.
0: One thing that you mentioned briefly on like the withdrawal process
1: mm-hmm.
0: and one thing that I was not prepped for was in grad school, they did talk to me about urinary tract infections and altered mental status, right? And how yes. like that can change cognition. But there was a huge disconnect in that conversation for me personally with UTI, altered mental status and dysphagia and how in its severe form, how how profound that can be. And then my my other little grandma, the one who just most recently passed away, she was a frequent flyer for UTIs and a brittle diabetic and like all the other 400 things. But that's all, unless you are familiar with it, the first time you see that, that feels like an atypical presentation. And then on the
1: other side, that feels like bread and butter, if that makes yeah. sense. No, you're right. I do take for granted my understanding of like what can cause dysphagia that to most people wouldn't make sense. And you bring up a really good point of UTI. UTI, especially if there's a sepsis component, or even just super severe UTI, because you have so many organs that are affected. And, you know, it's so interesting to me, because I before I was, you know, in the medical side of things, I would have never thought about how many other systems in our body were going to be could be affected by a UTI. You know, a UTI seems like, you know, it's, it's your urinary tract, but like you're like, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. It should be pretty simple.
0: That's to- <laughs> It's not connected to my throat. Okay. Exactly. I remember thinking that. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. The boys call their business a tallywacker. The ladies parts heard a ta, which was very confusing when the children were at the Christian school and they learned the song, a tootie ta, a tootie ta, a tootie ta ta. And the boys <gasps> oh my came up and they're like, They were like, Mommy, they're singing about the lady business. And I was like, Oh my my God, I've I've ruined my children. (laughs) Yes, but like, the things that we grow from as parents.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, but
0: I digress. This is. Hillary's going to be like, you and Jessica lost your marbles. No, no, no.
1: this, This is good. We're good. I promise.
0: But yes, a urinary tract infection that even that far away can trigger the severity. Okay, wait. Profound, profound case that completely threw me and fundamentally changed me. In my final graduate practicum, we had, and I just told this to my patients, we had a patient that had oral thrush and we kept getting pulled in. She was an incredibly heavy set minority female, she had oral thrush. The conversation came about because of racial disparity in medicine, right? And she had severe oral thrush and her fluid intake was dropping. Well, I would anticipate with any oral thrush that your fluid intake and your overall intake would deteriorate because it hurts, right? And. The problem was we had a new resident, bless them, new residents. I mean, give give me the real doctor if that's (laughs) the game, right? I mean, he was pretty on the eyes, but like that was about all he contributed in any plan of care. And the patient kept complaining of pain and nobody like in, in the business area for the women folk and nobody followed up on her. And I remember being so young and so frustrated and why were they not? And now I understand multiple ramifications of this breakdown, but at the time I didn't grasp the gravity of the situation and they would go in and they would, you know, do changings and stuff like that. And she had a yeast infection, but they didn't build beyond that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It turns out she had a vagal anal fistula (gasps) and she went septic. Oh no. And that was my first understanding that an oral yeast infection can be indicative of flora and fauna difficulties throughout the entire body. And that if you have a vaginal yeast infection, that we need to connect the dots. I mean, the multitude of growth from this is recognizing racial disparity in medicine, advocating harder, farther, and more for those patients, but also understanding that your body's microbiome is so interconnected that if it's off in one system, it'll be off in another. And I carried that over to my peens patients that were like chronic G-tube fed that had very, I mean, we're supposed to eat according to the seasons. We're supposed to have fermented foods into our body. Like those were historically our way of nourishing our gut microbe, right? And then there's that whole added layer that we now know that lymphatic system from our GI tract directly overlays onto our brain. And we didn't find that out to like within the last couple of years that like our lymph system even touched our brain, which is kind of gut, brain, mouth connection, all intertwined. But I have found repeatedly, I've had several single sugar, heavy, dominant, Synthetic process crap, G tube formulas. Y'all fill in the blanks. Oh, um, yes, and then the patients. Yes, and the patients have had vaginal or testicular yeast infections that they haven't been able to shake. And then they've had this incredible pocketing of oral secretions and and all these things. And then come to find out, when we finally convinced a GI to run a scope, guess who had yeast infections in their throat? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, their, not their throat, but their esophagus. It yeah. is connected. Mic drop. Rar huge soapbox. <laughs> There were so many soapboxes inside of that one little thing, but yes, an atypical presentation of dyspepsia that actually carries across the life continuum. So, my takeaway is if I have a patient that has been wanting to eat more, but then all of a sudden they're pocketing and they're holding, and you know somebody somewhere said, "Oh, they have a yeast infection." I'm like, get a scope.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point that you make because the threshold alone is just something that drives me insane. Is it's so painful. And people go, Oh, they're just being behavioral or this or that. And I'm like, I've never had it. But based on what they're telling me, it is so uncomfortable. Yes. And how many antibiotics are your patients on?
0: I mean, every single
1: one of them. I mean, you name it, they're on yes. it.
0: Wait, have you ever read Drugs and Dysphagia by Carl Johnson? Yes. Oh, I love that book. (laughs) I met him. He signed my copy. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's awesome. (laughs) It was the most mortifying experience of my life. Y'all check out the book, Drugs and Dysphasia. It's by Carl Johnson. And forgive me, I do not, he's a speech language pathologist from the state of Florida. He is one of the kindest guys, and his eyes are reminiscent of my pops. And so, like, I immediately fell in love with him and his, you know, snow white hair. And when I saw him at Asha, Pre-COVID, the 2019 ASHA, he was there in his motor scooter and I just about fell out when I saw him again. That book at the time that it was published in 2006 went through every single medication and how medicines can induce oropharyngeal dysphagia, oropharyngeal esophageal overall body dysphagia. And he even included, I mean, yes, it was geared for the adults, but he included a component for pediatrics and there's a newer version that he created, but I, I, mean, I kept my original, but I was lecturing <laughs> in Florida and this man in the back of the room when I, it was a peds talk and he raised his hand and he asked me if he was going to, you know, if I was going to speak to drugs and dysphagia. And I started telling him all about this great big book and he smiled all knowingly. Well, then some kid somewhere in the hotel tripped the fire alarm. And so I ended up helping him out of the hotel and like down the escalator because, you know, he had his cane and I was worried. And this is what we do, right? Like this is who we are. <laughs> and then he can, continue- he asked me a couple more questions. I basically attempt to sell the man his own book, not realizing it was him. <laughs> and then like, <laughs> When we got done talking, he goes, he flipped his name badge over and he winked at me. And I said a whole lot of colorful four letter words. <laughs> he goes, goes darling, I haven't had that kind of, how do you do and about, Forty years, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" <laughs> yes. Long story short, drugs can induce dysphagia. Please go check out that book.
1: <laughs> it's a fabulous book, actually. It's so funny that it's it's a game changer because it is it lends us credibility as. SLPs to go to the physician and say, hey, we understand how this works. And let me explain to you. And now I think this is why this patient may have dysphagia. Could we look into this together? And that's really where things like that, tools like that have given us such a better role within the medical team to be able to help these patients and see what we can provide for them as a true medical personnel, like staff, you know, I just don't want to be the SLP that just went in there and found this dysphagia and then checked out. Like, I want to be a part of the care team. I want to be a part of the physician's thought process. And I want to be able to provide valuable information to other people to help really direct global care for these patients. And I think that's where our field is, at, you know, in Both pediatric and adult dysphagia, I think that's where we're pushing, is we're starting to push into we're not just the people that go and do your bedside evals or go do your instrumentals and give you information. We're the people that go and do that, but then we provide global information on how this is going to impact other subsystems within that person. Because, like you so perfectly put it, it's all one interconnected biome. You know, we're one big, you know, living creature. And so when something's going on elsewhere in the body, we can help show them, okay, that's how this led to that dysphagia. That's how this led to this presentation and put our weight in as a professional to say, look, when that patient had that infection in what the other part of their body, this is how we landed to our dysphagia because I have I, if I had a dollar for every time, a doctor said to me, I just don't understand how that could have caused, caused dysphagia. I would be a billionaire right now because they couldn't understand how the you know massive infection in somebody's foot led all the way to dysphagia. And I'm like, it's dominoes, you guys. This is not that hard. It's one domino knocking over the other and continuously going down until we get to the dysphagia. And so, you know, that's just something that's that's so these people that laid the groundwork for us all those years ago and help us be just more dynamic and good clinicians. I, I'm i so jealous that you get to meet him.
0: Oh my God. It was, I got my picture with him and like, I am <laughs> cheeseballing the likes of which, I mean, it's legit. Like, I'm just like, I I, I mean, he, in my opinion, is speech, he's, there's like, there's like this upper echelon of like speech language pathologists that are like the godfathers and the godmothers of our field. Yes. He's in that pantheon for me. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like it's just like when I met Joan Aronson my heart was racing and I was like you cannot faint on this petite older woman. <laughs> so like pull it together Dawson. <laughs> so like I mean, I didn't, I like walked away and had irregular heartbeats, but I do, to be fair, have sometimes regular heartbeats at baseline. So like, <laughs> <laughs> definitely weren't enough heart monitors to determine that, but like no real etiology, I just have an extra tick of my ticker. <laughs> All right. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but... <laughs> <laughs> awesome, you yeah, have been so much fun, but you segued in perfectly to one thing that is near and dear to my heart the utilization of interprofessional practice in our patients' care. And, folks, if you've ever I mean, I know Jessica's an adult SLP, but if you've ever heard anything from First Bite, I truly say again and again and again, if you practice as a silo speech language pathologist, that is all that you will ever be. And your patients will not reach their optimal outcomes because you are, your patient will only succeed as great as the team that you build around them, period. Yes. You cannot diagnose
1: and fix it unless you have that team. My team is so large. We would need a whole stadium for my entire team. I agree. I I actually, I hate practicing on like what I call practicing on the island where you're just by yourself and you're doing everything because A, I think it can, like you said, lead to poorer outcomes. But B, you know, we have to remember that just like we are extreme specialists and we know a ton about a particular topic, so do other professionals. And so, you know, some of the professionals that have probably made me the most well-rounded clinician that I am, you know, we always think neurology because of course I am in love with my neurologists. They are just such a grand wealth of knowledge and they spent so much more time really going into all of these topics that i have a burning passion about i just don't have you know enough hours in the day to learn everything and that's the other thing why we should have a multidisciplinary team is that these other people just as many hours as i put into discovering things about dysphagia they're putting into their relative topics you know so some of the the people that have had the most impact on my career have been funny enough cardiologists really understanding heart function of course pulmonologists some of my people that I talk to the most in life are pulmonologists. Really understanding the respiratory system has been kind of an evolution for me, and it's still an area that I continue to grow in every day. General surgeons. So the people that are actually going and doing some of these surgeries, and I'm sitting there going, well, crap, how did we end up in the state that we're in? And the general surgeons have been able to come and say, well, hold on. Okay, so this was the surgical path I took and this is the different muscles that were affected. And here's maybe some of the nerve pathways that were impacted. And as they're going down it, I'm going, ding, 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 ding. Thank you. Thank you. I now understand what happened here. Rheumatologists, ear, nose, and throat doctors. And then of course, my all-time love, my favorites are laryngologists because they are just as obsessed as I am about everything that has to do with the throat. We are equally obsessed with it. And it's funny. I know a couple ENTs and laryngologists and we'll text each other like fun finds or, you know, it's, it's nice because like, <laughs> it's really sad. If you look through my phone, my poor, my poor husband every now and then, he'll like uh, make the mistake of like opening up my phone and he's like, oh, why? Why is this picture in here? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, Wait. I was... <laughs> I was texting so-and-so about this like crazy patient that I had and his tongue was split in half. And so we had the pictures and I wanted to, you know, know about, you know, how deep this went or something like that. And it's amazing because as you bring in those other people, they can really start to put the global pieces together for your patient. And For me, I like, I'm obsessed with prognostics. I always want to know where my patient can get and what should be an accepted outcome. Like, where should we be shooting for? Where should we be aiming for? And what is something that we should give that patient for goals? Because why I'm asking this patient to work so hard and to trust me so much, I want to be able to say, this is what we're aiming for. And this is a realistic expectation so that I don't get their hopes up or, Give them not enough of a goal where they don't want to try as hard because, well, who cares? That's not a good outcome for me. And that's where I use this multidisciplinary team as well as to look at them and say, what do you think? What are your thoughts? And The relationships that I've built and the amount of respect that I think I've built like me for them and them for me just by asking questions has completely changed my practice. And I think it's given me a lot better outcomes for my patients because – How frustrating is it when you're trying to get a patient some services and that doctor just won't call you back or you just can't get, you know, the right amount of information? And so working on those relationships early on and often can sometimes change the outcome for hundreds of patients later on that come under your care. And so you know, that's something that I also didn't necessarily think a ton about in grad school because I was so busy learning about how to just be a clinician that I forgot that I needed to know about all these other people and what they did so that I could go and have conversations with them and come to them with questions that were going to be relevant to them and would give me the biggest bang for my buck for how to guide my patients.
0: That is, I have put effort. Okay, so I'm um, clinic coordinator at our little university and coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor, but I treat 10 to 12 PFD patients a week. I practice what I preach and Mm -hmm. our clinic class, I focus on therapeutic presence and IPE. So we have guest speakers from different disciplines, psychology coming in talking about being aware of risk factors for trauma and abuse and neglect across the life continuum and how to fully engage in self-care. What does an OT do in the NICU? What I mean, all of these different steps and I'm going to get my allergist friend to come in and talk about like food allergens and mm-hmm, yeah, big 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 plans, but It's those team. I mean, honestly, when you you said your husband picked up the phone and looked at a split tongue, like I can't tell you how many pictures of poop I have on my phone right now because (laughs) parents text me, like we engage with like dialogue with gastroenterologists are my like lifeline for in the world of PFD. So like, we'll like try a new formula and the parents like, Ooh, I don't know about this one. We have an increased mucus in, I mean, <laughs> fecal matter on my cell phone. And it's really funny because Bruce, when he was like six, so like two years ago, he looked over my shoulder at my phone and he goes, mommy, they need a second opinion. And I was like, <laughs> yes, and I'm done. I'm done. Like I have done a good job. My son will one day contribute to the world. I was like, yes, everybody is entitled to a second opinion, maybe a third or fourth until you find the correct <laughs> One that's willing to participate in diagnostic workup, but yes, yes, have an opinion <laughs> on people matter content from a six-year-old. If, if my six-year-old can figure it out, why could the physician not? But <laughs> for that I kid, we that. ended up having to change GI docs. And once we got to the right GI, you know, funny, we've got a whole lot of diagnoses. Hmm. It's shocking. Um, it's, it's shocking. The power of continuing
1: education, even for our counterparts. <laughs> exactly. And when you find that doctor, you know, that's the ones you make friends with. You know, I, I, yes. I have so yes. many physicians where I'm like, I don't think you understand this now, but we're friends. And can I have your cell phone number? <laughs>
0: don't know it, but I'm adopting you and this is how it's working. <laughs> yes. Thank you oh so much. <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name's Michelle. I'm your new SLP stalker. Just kidding, <laughs> but not really.
1: <laughs> That's exactly oh, it. <laughs>
0: yes. Okay, wait. Okay, so I have to be conscientious of our time. Y'all, we're crazy, but we're not really that crazy. But you know, you are also slightly our level. If anybody wants to volunteer with the Dyspatia Outreach Project, how can they best reach y'all and follow y'all?
1: Thank you so much for asking that. So we have, of course, our social media platforms. So we are on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram team is really, really, really interactive. So if you reach out through there, Or if you check out our website, we will open certain volunteer job positions that we are in need of. And so if you go on our website, there will be a tab for volunteers and you can go and look to see if we have anything that you'd be interested in volunteering in. So those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of us and to see if there's anything that you'd be interested in doing for the Dysphagia Outreach Project.
0: Excellent. Jessica, this has been an absolute pleasure and a joy. And I am so grateful for everything that Dysphagia Outreach Project is doing to fill the dire need and the gap for our patient care. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, for every registration with SpeechTherapyPD.com that uses the coupon code Capital D Capital O Capital P for Dysphasia Outreach Project, ten dollars will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that ten dollars will in turn be donated to Dysphasia Outreach Project. So, if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice. To pay it forward a little bit more, join pd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all!